Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings from Adillac, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us today on the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. And we're here in the studio to bring you another episode of our Dusty Shelf series. Here at the War College, we talk and think a lot about the contemporary environment. So this series is designed to allow us to take a step back in time and to look at items of historical interest that still speak to us today. For today's podcast, we're looking at Baron Wilhelm von Steuben's Blue Book, which was originally published in 1779 and was one of the Continental Army's first training manuals. So it holds an important place in U.S. military history. Here to talk to us today about this fascinating piece of military history is Jack Giblin, who is the Chief of Visitor and Education Services for the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at the U.S. Army War College. Jack has had a long career working in museums and specializes in the material culture of the 18th century, the French and Indian War and Revolutionary War periods, and Eastern Woodland Native American culture and history, so he is particularly well-suited to introduce us to this important piece of AHEX collection. Welcome to the War Room, Jack. It's great to be here. Great. So we'll start off with our traditional first question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about uh, von Steuben's Blue Book and about von Steuben himself, and then how it came to be part of AHEX collection? Well, it's quite interesting that everyone calls it the Blue Book, but really its title is The Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States. That's a much longer... Yes, much longer title. Title. Blue Book came from the fact that the first edition was blue. (laughs) Uh, Not very original, but uh, one way to to at least identify it. And uh, the name sort of stuck uh, throughout history. Uh, Von Steuben himself was quite the character. Uh, he actually was a Prussian officer uh, in the uh, Prussian army during the French and Indian War period, uh, better known in Europe as the Seven Years' War, uh, fought at the Battle of Prague, but he came from a long line of military officers. Uh, both his father and his grandfather uh, served in the German-Prussian armies uh, before that time. And uh, He really uh, was quite the different kind of officer. Uh, He led an alternative lifestyle. Uh, That actually is one of the reasons that uh, he lost his commission to a degree in the Prussian army, many believe. Uh, He was under investigation at the time, and it was also at the time of drawdown at the end of the war, uh, end of the Seven Years' War, 1764. And uh, so he, he literally was looking for work. And uh, he bumped into a, uh, a prince. Uh, the, uh, the prince was uh, the first prince, Joseph Frederick Wilhelm, of the Hohenzollern Heineken, and I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, and uh, he was, it was a, a princeship, a, a small town, and he became the economic officer, major general by rank, technically, uh, for this prince. Uh, the only problem was the prince was broke. <laughs> and uh, so with his indebtedness, so went uh, Baron von Wilhelm von Steuben. Uh, and uh, so as a result, he, he really was looking for work anywhere in the world for his skill set. And his skill set was as a training officer. He was very adept at training and maneuvering men in the field. Okay. So he leaves Prussia. It turns out that there's this thing going on over in the British colonies in North America. And so how does he how does he get connected to Washington 
and uh, the army that Washington is is forming up. Well, he he actually starts first uh, by taking a trip to France, uh, and he he meets uh, uh, the Comte de Germain, who is the French uh, Minister of War, and uh, he introduces him to Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and uh, literally, von Steuben tries to ply his wares to Franklin, and Franklin basically looks at von Steuben and says, "We, we have no money to pay you," and so he he makes the decision to volunteer and and to cast his lot in America. And he he finds the money to make his way overseas and and lands in Boston with a small contingent of his aides, dressed in red. Not a good idea. <laughs> uh, they are almost arrested. Uh, but they are vouched for by uh, a citizen, and uh, and then he finally makes his way to greet Washington, and Washington gives him a temporary uh, rank of Inspector General, and he convinces Washington that that he can help him reestablish uh, a, a somewhat broken army uh, in 1777 and 1778. They had uh, badly lost at uh, at Brandywine and at Princeton before that. Uh, they had been defeated uh, quite soundly at Germantown. And so they were in a, a horrible condition when they enter Valley Forge in, in the winter of 77-78. Great. So we have, I think, in American military history, there's this image or mythology that's built around Valley Forge and the winter at Valley Forge. Um, and we just had our first snow in, in Pennsylvania uh, this this morning. And so there's this, um, again, this mythology that's that's built up. What happens that winter and and how is von Steuben uh, sort of part of that American story? So as Washington's army is pushed out of Philadelphia after Brandywine and, in, and into into the uh, basically the hinterlands, the countryside, uh, they are literally looking for a place of safe haven. They're pinched. Uh, the, of course, the British are now occupying Philadelphia. Uh, they are they are sort of pinched between the breadbasket of of Lancaster and York, where the Continental Congress has has basically escaped to, uh, and uh, they really are trying to figure out a way to reestablish themselves. The winter, you know, many many people believe from the the art and other things that existed at the time that this was this horrible winter of feet and feet of snow and. No, actually, it was quite the opposite. It was, a, it was a pretty common winter in Pennsylvania, a little bit of snow, and that was part of the problem. Uh, they didn't have good water resources where they did in camp, and so they couldn't melt snow for water. There really wasn't any. It was icy and nasty, uh, cold, uh, but it was uh, horrible conditions because they didn't have uniforms. Uh, the uniforms were in poor repair. Uh, many of the men had been on long conscriptions at that point and wanted to go home. Uh, and they, the men at that time still were following the individual officers that they had come up through the militias with. And so as a result, you started to see mutinous situations uh, crop up. And so Washington had to do something to change all that, and the baron became his way of, of addressing that. And so what, what does the Baron do? What does von Steuben do with this, um, this army that's really made up of many militias and lots of men who are maybe bored and maybe hungry and cold and tired? Well, what, Washington really wanted uh, von Steuben to basically train these men in a way that they had a, a common ground, that they all were trained alike. At that point, all of them were following different military manuals. Uh, it really depended on the officer that they were under as to which military manual or, or even common manual that they had made at home they were following. And so he wanted a, a commonly trained army. Von Steuben convinced 120 men to come out in the cold, and he told them all that he was creating an honor guard for Washington, a lifeguard. 
and he trained them in common military disciplinary practices that he had learned as a, a European soldier on the battlefields of Europe. How to march, how to properly encamp, how to properly dress, uh, how to address other officers, uh, how to address uh, NCOs, what NCOs jobs were. Uh, a lot of that had never, these men had been trained in very little. Uh, they really didn't have a, a good grounding uh, in, in the understandings of the art of war. And so he began to train these 120 men. Then he sent them back to their, their regiments and brigades. And they then trained those regiment and brigades in the same common drill. So that by the end of the time of Valley Forge, and as they are coming out of the encampments there, they at least were all trained alike, or at least had the knowledge of training of all alike. That gave really two really important training aspects to this. One, uh, the men obviously were all trained mostly the same. But two, now the officers were also trained in the same manner, and they had the same common ground to work from. So all of them were working off of basically the same playbook. So they have a, it's a sort of snowball effect. You start to the small group, and it grows out from there, but it gives everybody a common language and a way of doing things that can provide some cohesion to this mm -hmm. army that hadn't necessarily been cohesive Absolutely. before. Absolutely, and, and, and the Baron was the perfect one to do it. He, he was quite... Uh, full of pomp and circumstance. Uh, when he, we came out onto the field, he came out in full Prussian regalia, all of his medals, his, his, his cocked hat, uh, his cane, his swagger stick, and occasionally he even brought his greyhound onto the field. I mean, he, he came with a number of aides. And he, he only spoke German, a little bit of French. Uh, he had others who translated for him, but he swore a lot. <laughs> and, that's a, that's a and, way and, to get soldiers to listen, right? right? And so the men connected with him. They almost thought he was comical. Uh, some soldiers referred to him as the clown because he, he basically came out looking like uh, uh, this, this sort of great officer, yet he, he had a common guttural language that they could all, all relate to. Very good. And so they all found him to be uh, a person they could follow, they could listen to. Sure. I, one of the things I like about this story is it reinforces the international nature of the American Revolution, uh, that the Americans are quite uh, reliant on foreign military officers, uh, from von Steuben to Lafayette, uh, the French Navy, uh, Thaddeus Kosciusko, right? That these are all people who have a, a really important part to play in the American Revolution and in American history yeah, even uh, more broadly. Even Alejandro Pileski, who a Polish officer who, who ad hoc at Brandywine creates a cavalry unit and goes out on the field and ends up being the guy that basically allows Washington's men to retreat right. uh, and by, by stemming off the British tide. Absolutely. So, yeah, so it was a bit of a melting pot at that point. Yeah, already um, in, in American history, you right. see this this trend. Um, how, does, how do we get from von Steuben training troops at Valley Forge to the publication of the Blue Book. I don't even remember the longer title by now. <laughs> uh, but the publication of the book, which then becomes a foundational document and training manual for uh, what's going to become the U.S. Army. Well, the, ag the exact facts of, of how the Blue Book came to be authored, unfortunately, are probably lost to time. The, the, the key fact is, is that uh, the Continental Congress, after seeing the men trained and seeing the, the improvements they made at Monmouth and other places, they uh, asked, Washington asked, von Steuben to pen a set of regulations. Uh, he works with Alexander Hamilton and Nathaniel Green, previous commander at Carlisle Barracks here, uh, to, uh, who, to basically pen that manual. Uh, and it is put before the Continental Congress in, in around 1779, and it's adopted as the first training manual uh, for the Continental Army. 
course, then when we become the United States of America, that is the document that is used all the way up through uh, the, the War of 1812 and even into the Mexican War. Um, it actually officially goes out at the end of the War of 1812, but because no one wrote a concise manual <laughs> after that time, there were a lot of people, even Weinfield right. Scott did his pitch, um, uh, they still start uh, follow many, many of the units that were in training still were following that manual well up into the Mexican right. War. So can you tell us a little bit more about the contents of the manual? Is it, is it long? Is it short? Um, what, is it, what does it tell us about military life in, in this time period? Well, it's a few hundred pages. Um, it's broken up into a variety of different chapters, but each chapter represents a different aspect of building a soldier, building an officer, and, and how they are to perform. Uh, so, for instance, one of the chapters uh, talks about how to be an officer and a non-commissioned officer. What are the principles they need to follow? How to appropriately dress? Uh, what the uniform should look like? Of course, at this point, while the Continental Army has been stood up, and yes, they did have a Continental uniform, not every unit in the Continental Army had the same uniform. And that was a critical factor for both von Steuben and Washington. He, comes, he later goes on to become inspector general and actually pushes hard for a common set of clothing for all soldiers in the Continental Army so that by the end of the war, the Congress has initiated uh, those funds and they are actually all clothed alike. Um, and, and all of that commonality goes to appropriately training them to go out on the battlefield and work together as a unit. Um, because at this time, uh, that was not common in, in America. Uh, a lot of the fighting was Indian fighting and, and small skirmishes uh, out on the frontier. Uh, they were not used to, to large tactical battles uh, on large open fields with great maneuvers of men. So you had to teach them how to wheel, how to march, how to appropriately follow orders when you were in the, the throes of war. Uh, you know, the battlefield is a noisy place. Uh, there's guns going off. There's cannons going off. Um, they needed to learn how to follow drumbeats, which drumbeat told them to march, which drumbeats mm -hmm. told them to stop. And when they couldn't hear the drumbeats, they needed to be able to follow the signal uh, weapon, which is the halberd, of their NCO in the, in the line. All of that was in the manual. And, and none of that had been taught to them really before that time. So this is one of the ways that we see the American Army um, becoming maybe more like European armies of yes. the of the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and and they had to in order to compete on a global level. You know, from right. a strategic perspective, this was a, an important stepping off point for the young country because if even though we wanted to at that point have a, not have a standing army, we still needed to show with our even our small professional army that we were able to train and to work with the rest of the world. Um, you know, you even see it on the battlefield today. I mean, we have many troops overseas today uh, who are working to train other armies of the world in the way we fight war. Sure. Um, that is exactly what von Steuben did. He came over here to train the young American army in the ways of war of Europe at that time. Yeah. That's a really interesting uh, comparison that I hadn't thought of before. But this idea that you that there's a, a culture and a way of fighting that is generally accepted and that militaries adopt as their uh, growing and learning uh, and, and forming their own norms and values and cultures and things like that. Um, and we, we do see the replication, right, of American 
doctrine and ways of fighting um, sort of replicated throughout mm-hmm. the throughout the world. So I think that's a really important um, sort of leap forward into the 21st century, maybe. It also seems, and maybe you can comment on this as, as we sort of wrap up, but there are, there are some lessons in in leadership from from von Steuben and from Washington from the Continental Congress about how how you go about adapting an army to the to the things that it, it has to learn and that it has to do um, as well. So there the the document is important and the, the manual is important, uh, but the the people involved matter matter a lot. Oh, as absolutely. Well. I mean, in the case of Washington, uh, Washington learned from his mistakes. Um, his his uh, ability as an officer in the French and Indian War was not anywhere near the par of what you see in the Revolutionary War. Uh, he learned to be a tactician. He learned to be a strategist uh, through his mistakes and through serving with British officers like like Edward Braddock, uh, where he got to see how some of the, the highly trained officers of the world operated. Uh, and in the case of von Steuben, he got the ability here to show what he really never could in Europe, his ability as a, a leader. Uh, and he came in and he took a, an army that was broken and built it into an army that could withstand one of the world's superpowers mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and he did it in a very short period of time with little to work right. with. That's a pretty amazing feat. He never got the opportunity to demonstrate that in Europe, but he did yeah. here. And I think to go back to one of the things that you said earlier, right, um, von Steuben is basically kicked out of of Prussia, of Europe, um, for for being gay, right? That's right. That's, well, that's what the, we, at least that's, that's everybody's that's supposition. at least everybody's right. supposition, right? <laughs> and this, um, and he comes to to America, he comes to the colonies, and and sort of finds um, finds a way to to use his professional skills and knowledge, um, right. Even and certainly it, it wasn't like colonial America was exactly a, a haven or open to. Oh, by no means. But but at the same time, what it illustrated was that the mission was probably more important than the condition. Right. So the that the mission that Washington needed von Steuben for, he was the right man for the job in the right place at the right time. All the other factors in his life did not matter. I mean, he was quite eccentric. He was in debt most of the time. Um, he literally didn't have a place to live at the end of the war. It was given to him by the state of mm-hmm. New Jersey, uh, so uh, by the colony of New Jersey. Uh, but so he was in a, a, a he was in the right place at the right time for him. With the, yeah, with the right skills mm-hmm. that the that the uh, sort of nascent uh, United States desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, Thanks so much for joining us today. That was great. Um, I think it's always fascinating to figure out what uh, what is over at at AHEC. Now, is this is this something that people can see or look at? Is it on display or is it? Uh, we behind? do rotate it on display. It's it. Uh, we rotate different copies. We have we have several copies of the of the blue book, and we rotate different copies, including the original, uh, out into our treasures exhibit every uh, few months. 
Uh, I think it's about every nine months. Great. We, we rotate a different piece out, but it, it has been on display, but I think it just came off display. Just came off, okay. But, uh, but we, are, we are digitizing some of our collection right now, and, and so soon you will be able to see that in digits. And there are other, are, there are other copies of the Blue Book uh, in LOC, Library of Congress, and NARA, and Great. other places that, that are also available. But yes, we, we have several copies at the AHEC that are available. Excellent. So if you're in Carlisle, if you're passing through, uh, or if you're a student or a faculty member uh, here, Take a trip over to AHEC, see what's in the treasure room. Uh, like they said, they rotate it out, and it's always a fascinating uh, thing to see. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our much. conversation. I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too. All right, so we're signing off from the War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.